So, Rachel. Yeah. McCoy, delirious from the accidental ingestion of an experimental drug, leaps through a time portal to 1930s New York City with Kirk and Spock in pursuit, where their actions could affect the course of history. Whoa. Is the drug in McCoy's booze, do you think? (laughs) I'm guessing it's a drug that's supposed to keep women young looking. That's the only drug we've had so far, I guess, in Mud's women that he's maybe using to reduce his eye bags. (laughs) So 1930s New York is probably... Is Prohibition still going by then? Yes. McCoy won't like that. <laughs> but we might be in for some great gangster stuff and then they should have some fun outfits. I guess it'll be in the Great Depression though. Yeah. Will they become torn as to whether or not to stop the Wall Street crash maybe? Mm-hmm. This will be their first time back on Earth, I'm guessing. So it must be a time and space portal. Why do they need the Enterprise then if this tech's available to get people anywhere? Mm. It really pisses all over beaming, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> All solid points that oh, you bring bang. up. Rachel watches Star Trek. Captain's log, supplemental entry. Two drops of cortisone can save a man's life. A hundred times that amount has just accidentally been pumped into Dr. McCoy's body. And in a strange, wild frenzy, he has fled the ship's bridge. All connecting decks have been placed on alert. We have no way of knowing if the madness is permanent or temporary or in what direction it will drive McCoy. Welcome, listeners, to the penultimate episode of this season, City on the Edge of Forever. Wow, did you ever think we'd get to this point? No. This is no British season of six episodes. <laughs> we're talking, what is this, 26 or something? This is the 29th episode. 20, we're talking 29 episodes. Yeah. And the season end wrap-up episode is coming for you soon. Yes, I've got so many questions. Some deep, deep <laughs> yeah. talk that this we have to do about this. This is some analysis. We've got a lot to talk about. But first, the city on the edge of forever. The episode begins, just as it did last time, with the bridge shaking about under some kind of attack. No half-baked visual effects on top of it this time, thankfully. Mm, The ship is on red alert as it orbits an unexplored planet. Because it's being rocked about by violent time distortions and the control circuits may overload. Then BAM! The helm council explodes, zaps Sulu and knocks him to the floor. (gasps) Scotty then jumps over to the helm, suggesting a breaking orbit. But Spock says, no way. We're passing through a great scientific discovery. Ripples in time. They should stay and investigate. Did you like Sulu's eye makeup? (laughs) I didn't notice it. (laughs) You did? I did. No, I did. I mean, they all kind of have eyeshadow on. Yeah, it's a lot more noticeable when their eyes are closed, when they're knocked out, I guess. Yeah, I guess it's just to make them pop a bit more. Yeah. Yeah, it just was really noticeable. I'm like, why is... (laughs) HD again, I guess. I guess it's HD. (laughs) So couldn't they investigate this scientific discovery from a bit of a distance? Evidently not. Mm. Well, their sensors are pretty powerful, aren't they? Except that they always detect no life when in fact there's loads. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they work as well as the story permits them to work. Mm, Yeah. So Kirk agrees with Spock and then McCoy comes to treat Sulu who he diagnoses with a heart flutter. Oh, is that all? That doesn't sound like much, does it? We can do that now. Just shuck it back into its right rhythm. <laughs> That's right. But he's going to use this drug called Cordrazine, a made-up drug, not mm-hmm. real, but also the name of an Australian band. Oh, hi, guys and girls or whoever you are. So ignoring Kirk's caution that it's tricky stuff, McCoy injects Sulu with this 
Cordrazine. Mm, Sulu comes around straight away, so McCoy ribs Kirk about trying to get involved in medicine. Cheeky. He'll be laughing on the other side of his face soon. <laughs> he will. So the ship shakes violently as it collides with another time ripple, and McCoy slips onto the hypospray, which still has a lot of the drug in it, and it injects right into his mm, gut. It looks like an EpiPen. Mm. Is it an adrenaline kind of equivalent? Uh... I don't really. It's space say. drugs. Okay. <laughs> Why does it have more than one dose in it? Why didn't he replace the cap? Because. <laughs> Story. Story. <laughs> so Kirk and Spock rush to uh, McCoy's aid, but uh, he darts up in this crazed panic. Yeah, it's pretty fabulous. He rises up like a man possessed and has so much energy coursing through him, shouting about killers and assassins and escaping in the lift. It's pretty amazing. He like takes on the whole bridge crew by himself <laughs> and gets away. Yeah. I guess they weren't trying very hard. So Kirk orders a security alert. That makes a change. Let's see how effective it is. <laughs> I think you can guess how effective <laughs> it's going to be. So McCoy makes it to the transporter room, steals Lieutenant Kyle's phaser and transports. On the bridge, Spock tells Kirk that patients exposed to so much cordrazine wouldn't recognize people they know and would become hysterically fearful for their lives, becoming a danger to themselves and others. Ah, I missed that bit. I wondered why he was so paranoid. <laughs> they hear that McCoy has beamed down to the center of the time disruptions on the planet. It's time to get a landing party to rescue him. Uhura is in the landing party. I know. I got so excited when I saw that. <laughs> Hooray, she gets to go to 1930s New York and be in one of the best episodes of Star Trek. So with her are Kirk, Spock, Scotty, Galloway, and another security officer. What, you haven't researched his full name and history this time? <laughs> There's only so many hours of the day. <laughs> so who's flying the ship if all those are there? Sulu, I guess. <laughs> really? Man, I guess that drug is good. <laughs> <laughs> he did look pretty happy after they injected him with it. <laughs> yeah, he did. He didn't just wake up and was kind of groggy. He like woke up and um, smiled. Yeah. <laughs> I gotta say, Crazy McCoy is like my favorite thing that has ever existed. <laughs> what? It's pretty good. I want him creeping around in every movie and TV show. <laughs> Write it in your script, folks. Even if you can't see him, if he's just like sneaking around unseen in every, every scene. Unseen in every yeah, scene. <laughs> just that to think about, like picture a scene, you know, like in The English Patient. You know, where it's totally boring. But if you think about like McCoy sneaking around being all crazy. Yeah. Behind the tent or whatever. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. The movie's 10 times better. I might be able to get through 2001 A Space Odyssey now. Oh, just gonna, we're gonna let that go by. <laughs> Do you like it? Of course I like it. Oh. So they land on the planet, which is a big ruined city. They say it goes on as far as the eye can see with a big upright hoop of a rock with lights around it. That has to be the portal. Mm -hmm. Everyone but Spurk are sent off to search for McCoy. Well, you're referring now to Spock and Kirk as Spurk. Sometimes. <laughs> You can do what you like. It's, it's your show. It's called Rachel Watches Star Trek. Not yeah. Chris talks about Rachel watching Star Trek. Spock detects that it's the center of all the time disruptions, setting out waves powerful enough for the ship to detect them millions of miles away. What? Yeah, so wait a minute. <laughs> your earlier statement about why couldn't they be further away? Why, oh, yeah. Why couldn't they be further away? <laughs> yeah. And why couldn't they detect it? It's a good bit of set, though. Looks pretty solid, less polystyrene than usual. Mm -hmm. And Kirk is so commanding, he's able to make it say what it is, mm -hmm. even though it's a bit of stone. And what is it? A question. Since before your sun burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. What are you? 
I am the guardian of forever. Are you machine or being? I am both and neither. I am my own beginning, my own ending. I see no reason for answers to be couched in riddles. I answer as simply as your level of understanding makes possible. <laughs> so condescending, that portal. Sure is. <laughs> since before your sun burned hot in space. So he's been waiting for them since before their sun burned hot in space. Whew, that's a long wait. That is a long wait. And I'm. it raises some questions for me. I didn't really think about it much when I was a kid. So this is on another planet, mm. which is really far away. But they go back to Earth. Yeah, like, I don't understand why. What's, what's that about? Why don't they go back to the history of this particular planet and does this planet only do earth is it like an earthophile planet it's really yeah obsessed with I doing earth so it's called the guardian forever and is both machine and being but yet neither so it's a gateway into earth's past and inside the portal is screened stock footage of earth's history chariot racing horseback chases war suddenly in runs mccoy he's cornered by everybody in the search party and then spot gives him a nerve pinch he's down Kirk has a wacky idea to bring McCoy back to normal. Is this because the drug will not wear off eventually? Yeah, I guess so, because Spock said it may be permanent. Hmm. His idea is to go back a day through the portal to make sure the accident doesn't happen. So just go back and put the cap on the EpiPen. <laughs> yeah. It'll be fine. So the footage is scrolling quickly through the years, jumping from century to century. Spock starts filming it with his tricorder just as McCoy revives and jumps through the portal and it shuts down. Ah. The Guardian explains, he has passed into what was. Uh-oh. I've lost all contact with the ship, says Uhura. The Guardian says, your vessel, your beginning, all that you knew is gone. Oh, no, McCoy, what have you done? <laughs> Even though he has been less seethy in recent episodes, he's now gone full purge on us, so it could be anything. <laughs> it could be. So Kirk realizes McCoy has changed history, leaving them stranded with no past and no future. I'm frightened, says Uhura. What did you think of that? On one hand, I'm glad she can express her emotions so openly, mm -hmm. but on the other hand, why couldn't Galloway say it? Mm. Rand would cling to Kirk at that point, <laughs> but a male character wouldn't say it at all. So her is somewhere in between. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> and it's kind of interesting here too, because they aren't affected by this time change, even though the Enterprise disappeared. Mm. They uh, still I, exist. They on still the exist yeah, with the memory weird. of everything. I guess maybe because they're so close to the time distortion mm. that they're exempt from the effects of the alteration. Right, yeah. And again, story. Story. So Spock plays back uh, what he recorded and finds that McCoy jumped into the early 20th century and he thinks he can calculate it so they can jump in within a month of that date. The Guardian tells them that if they are successful in mending the timeline, they will be able to return. Wait, why is this portal there? Has it just been waiting since before our universe was created, just prepping this montage so it can eventually <laughs> screw with some humans? Why show just Earth history? Like I was saying before, if this planet exists, why aren't they showing uh, the history of the whole universe of like other planets? I was thinking maybe that this is based on the idea that they're humans and yeah. so it's showing their history. Their history, yeah. But... Why didn't they throw in a little Vulcan history yeah, too? Because that's true. there. Obviously, it's a human audience. So yeah. budget-wise, they just had to get a bunch of stock footage, throw in there. If, if they had to shoot like Vulcan in Vulcan history, and then, you know, that's a whole rigmarole. Yeah, and it connects more with us as an audience if it's our history. Right. Yeah. Kirk tells them that if he and Spock fail, that they should jump in and try to fix the time problems themselves. So he says that to Scotty and Uhura. Right. Scotty and Uhura wish Spock and Kirk 
good luck, and they jump into the portal. So why don't they all go? They don't want to put all their eggs in one basket, maybe? Mm -hmm. Might jump into the wrong spot. Yeah. If they jump in late and they can't fix time, then it's going to be up to Scotty and Uhura to fix it, which yeah. I would love to watch that episode. Yeah, I can't wait to see what adventure Uhura's going to have instead. <laughs> <laughs> in Uhura's defense, I wouldn't go back to the 1930s as a black woman. Mm. They arrive in what Kirk recognizes as 1930s New York. The time of the Great Depression. They stick out like sore thumbs and Spock tries to hide his ears by pretending to scratch his head as gawping people walk by. They run to an alley and Kirk notices some clothes on a fire escape and decides to shimmy up and nick them. This doesn't seem very Kirk, but well, he has the world as we know it to save. Yes, all of time. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, some clothes and, you know, he's the kind of guy that'll uh, bring them back later when they're done. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Months he, later. <laughs> Months later. So as they divvy up the clothes, a policeman arrives and Kirk launches into a cover story. You're a police officer. I recognize the traditional accoutrements. He was saying you'll have no trouble explaining it. My friend is obviously Chinese. I see you've noticed the ears. They're actually easy to explain. Perhaps the unfortunate accident I had as a child. The unfortunate accident he had as a child. He caught his head in a mechanical rice picker. But fortunately, there was an American missionary living close by who was actually a uh, skilled uh, plastic surgeon in civilian life. All right, all right. Drop those bundles and put your hands on that wall there. Come on. Oh, goodness <laughs> sake. The Chinese stuff. What? <laughs> The policeman's naturally more interested in the thieving than the ears, so he tries to arrest them. Then, pinch attack. He's down on the ground and Spurk escape into a basement. You know, uh, Harlan Ellison, the writer of this episode, but he oh. hated this scene. Oh. This episode had extensive rewrites and Ellison wanted his name off of the episode. Ooh. And he wanted to replace his credit with the name Cordwainer Bird. <laughs> Which is kind of an Alan Smithy thing, which if you're not familiar with Alan Smithy, that's when directors or writers don't want their name associated with a movie because it turned out so bad. Oh. There's a lot of movies out there that have directed by Alan Smithy. Oh, right. So this is that type of thing. But it was also a way to let other writers know that these guys suck to work for. So they'll Ooh. take your script. And, but Roddenberry threatened to blackball Ellison if he tried to change his name and put this bogus name on mm. there. You know, he buckled and said, okay, fine. Put my real name on there. Oh. DC Fontana did most of the rewrites on the script and I totally feel her touch on this episode. Oh, okay. I do have to say that Harlan Ellison's original script did not feel very Star Trek-y from what I've read of it. Mm. Instead of McCoy going nuts... There was a Starfleet guy dealing drugs on the Enterprise. Whoa. <laughs> and he kills somebody. He's fleeing so he doesn't get caught oh. and flees back in time. And then at the end of the episode, when they, they capture the guy, they bring him back. They full on execute the dude. Ooh, yikes. That's and not I, a feel good Sunday night, is it? No, and it doesn't feel like Star Trek at all. Mm. Corporal punishment and all. Unless, of course, it's unless going, it was Spock. going back to the forbidden planet the menagerie planet oh right yeah yeah that was, oh, don't go anywhere near that exactly so that's what was different about this episode mm. of course eventually this episode won lots of accolades and it's many people's favorite episode of star oh, trek right. so i think harlan might have changed his tune a bit about it <laughs> not sure so they change into their stolen clothes in this dirty storage basement kirk has a red and black lumber shirt like you've got mm -hmm. and spock's rocking double denim plus a fisherman's hat to cover his ears yeah. they know he looks best in blue he does so spock's tricorder has info about how mccoy changes history 
but they can't retrieve them until they tie into the enterprise computer, which I don't know how they could possibly do because mm. it's through time. But oh, yeah. Kirk suggests he build a computer here using what materials they can source. But Spock is skeptical that this is even possible. Again, Kirk won't take no for an answer. <laughs> Whoever he's working with must just do it anyway, even if it's impossible. Uh, through this whole episode, I'm a little confused as to how the tricorder gets this information and also information from two different timelines. Like, how nah, does that just work? go with it. <laughs> so down the stairs walks a stunning young woman. It's Joan Collins playing the character Edith Keeler. Clean off that Vaseline, Jean. She don't need it. <laughs> She's a very pretty lady. <laughs> She's perfectly calm about finding two strange men in her basement. <laughs> Kirk tugs on her heartstrings and uh, tells her that they escaped the police because they had stolen clothes on account of being poor. Lucky them, because this is a mission. And she is as kind and naive as all get out. She offers them 15 cents an hour for doing chores 10 hours a day, and they set to cleaning up the basement. Yeah, you say that she's naive. I don't think she was naive at all. Really? Yeah, I think that she knew exactly what was going on. I mean, they start to lie and then immediately she goes, I know you're lying. Mm -hmm. Why don't you just tell me the truth? And so Kirk does and she consents that he's telling the truth. I think she's super intelligent and sensitive. She says they nicked clothes because they were poor, but that's well, that's, that's tugging on her heartstrings, being a mission leader of people who are living in poverty in the Great Depression. Sure. They don't say we're from space and no, they don't say after that. someone. But they, I mean, they don't have any money, so they mm -hmm. needed to do that. And she can see that they're in trouble and she senses that they're not bad guys. So I maybe she's so. got some extra level of well, yeah, there's gut a, feeling that works out whether people are trustworthy or not. Yeah, I think she does. And there's implications that she does have like a greater understanding of things. Mm -hmm. Like she's really really forward thinking or smart or yeah. maybe even precognitive in some way. I don't know. Mm. But she's definitely special. And I don't think that she is naive. But that's my impression. It could be wrong. She's certainly very trusting. Yes. Later, Kirk and Spock eat soup and bread with the other poverty stricken men. So Edith takes to the stage saying it's time to pay for their food by listening to her. But instead of a religious speech, they get this. Now, I don't pretend to tell you how to find happiness in love when every day is just a struggle to survive. But I do insist that you do survive, because the days and the years ahead are worth living for. One day soon, man is going to be able to harness incredible energies, maybe even the atom. Energies that could ultimately hurl us to other worlds in, in some sort of spaceship. And the men that reach out into space will be able to find ways to feed the hungry millions of the world and to cure their diseases. They will be able to find a way to give each man hope and a common future. Wow. So theorizing that the atom and space travel in the 30s is pretty mm -hmm. amazing. Yeah. Curing disease, eradic eradicating hunger. And, you know, this stuff is all up Kirk's alley. He's oh, digging it. Oh, yeah. Finishing, she comes to Kirk and Spock, compliments them on a great job of the basement and offers to set them up with a flop which is an apartment in the same building as her. I guess it would have been common for men to share a room whilst trying to earn a crust in those days. Mm -hmm. Hell, I guess these days too in a big city. Yeah, what the heck? When I lived uh, in Santa Monica, oh, there was yeah. a period where we had three guys living in one bedroom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it showering happens. using a bag with holes in it. It was a camping shower, <laughs> yeah. which was a, a bag that with had holes a hose and oh, a little, oh, a little thing at the end of it. Yeah. It wasn't so bad. 
<laughs> so a few days later, Spock is frustrated at how long it's taking to build his computer. He already has this cool setup with a Jacob's ladder and a bunch of uh, vacuum tubes, but he needs a few pounds of platinum. Kirk isn't able to give this. Also, at this point, they've been there for a while. Mm. So time has passed. They've been there for a few weeks, that they say at this point. Spock has had time to do build this thing over a long period of time. They've had to earn money yeah. to be able to buy these things, mm -hmm. to put all this stuff together. Kirk has spent all of their money getting food and a few items. He's bought bologna and bread for himself and veggies for Spock. <laughs> Vulcans, I think, are vegetarian. Oh, are they? Yeah. They've not been able to eat any real food since they left Earth, I presume. So I'm interested that he goes for bologna and bread as like his top <laughs> choice. <laughs> Spock notices some guys doing detailed work, so he nicks their tools. Edith quickly discovers this and confronts them. How did they open the combination lock? Spock's got awesome sensitive ears. <laughs> what? Duh. <laughs> Kirk charms Edith into forgiving Spock, saying he was going to return them. So it's crime number three, and she asks him to walk her home. Yeah, because she knows he's a good guy. And she <laughs> believes him that he was going to put them back in the morning mm. because he was. Yeah. If he was a liar, she would have smelt right through it. Oh, Edith's no, awesome. No, man. <laughs> Edith's awesome. You cannot convince me otherwise. <laughs> Run, girl. But it's Kirk. I know. We know that. She does too. Deep down, okay. her intuition, she knows it's Kirk. She knows he's a good guy. Yeah. She is drawn to him because he sees the world the way that she does, which I guess is something that she's probably never found before. Yeah. It reminds me slightly of that historian who got all gooey over Khan and was so easily manipulated. Well. She was just waiting for him to pop out of her fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think she was waiting for anybody. I think she was living her life. Yeah, she was. So days later, Spock has managed to hook up his piece together silver and platinum free 1930s computer <laughs> to the Enterprise. Again, how? I don't understand. <laughs> Credit where it's due there. Absolutely. <laughs> he sees Edith's obituary from 1930 where she died in a traffic accident. They have microfish hookups, I guess, yeah. uh, to, the, to the computer. And he also sees a newspaper article from 1936 of her meeting Roosevelt. Mm. The computer then overloads under the strain and needs repair. Spock tells Kirk that Edith is the focal point in time for them and McCoy. And they wonder, will McCoy kill her or prevent her from being killed? They don't know yet which is the original source mm. newspaper. Yeah. Is she supposed to die this year or live on? Kirk is falling for her, so the prospect that she may have to die is painful already. But come on, Kirk, what are you doing? You know you're only there for a short while and that you're not supposed to affect history. Yeah. I guess this is by far the longest they've ever spent in a port, as it were. Yeah. And a man has needs, but <laughs> Kirk. <laughs> well, the heart wants what the heart wants. Yeah, he's just a lover. <laughs> so we cut back to the alley and McCoy jumps through a portal, still <laughs> screaming about assassins and murderers. He freaks out and chases a homeless man. And then he tries to work out where he is based on the stars. And he thinks it's Earth, but he can't believe that it's Earth. So he lies down on the ground sobbing about needles and sutures. What did you make of that part? I think he's freaked out about surgery and operating mm. and doing that kind of stuff. Does he feel like he's been sewn back together in the past or he needs to be now, perhaps? Uh, he's me. <laughs> he's crazy town. But I can understand why he would be devastated and despairing and not know what's reality and oh, sure. feel like absolute hell. Yeah, for sure. And he lies there on the ground and this homeless man decides, hey, I'm going to see what this guy's got on him. Takes his phaser. Oh, come on. And then he's fiddling around with it and then he disintegrates himself. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. 
Now, this scene was cut out of many of the syndicated rebroadcasts of the episode. And it's pretty dark for no real reason. Like, what does it add to the story? Here we've got a contrast. A crime is committed and the guy dies for it. Kirk and Spock have committed at least three already. And they've got even closer to the girl. Maybe it's a holdover from the other script. Mm. So the next day, McCoy staggers into the mission covered in red sores. Edith offers to help him. And when he says that he must not be found, she takes him to a private bed. So right after they leave, Spock comes in. He just missed him. Uh-huh. Oh, hello, raving infected man. Come into a private room with me with the door closed. <laughs> She's so caring and accepting, but how is she still in one piece? Because she knows. (laughs) Okay. She knows if somebody's really good or really bad. She can sense that. Yeah. I'm coming around to that a little bit more now. So Spock links up the tricorder again and accesses the time vortex scans. He deduces that McCoy prevented Edith's death, allowing her to found a pacifist movement, which influences Roosevelt to delay the U.S.'s involvement in World War II. This gave the Nazis time to complete their heavy water experiments. What? It's part of nuclear fission. It's where they make the water harder so Mm. that it slows down neutrons so that they're more likely to collide and cause fission. Ooh, well done. (laughs) I could be wrong. Basically, the Nazis developed the atomic bomb and they use it to conquer the world. Gosh. Now I just got it, how Spock was getting all this information. Yeah. Remember when he had his tricorder was recording what was on Yes. The portal. Yes. So he's All just, of Earth history. He had it on before McCoy jumped in. Yeah. And then when McCoy jumped in, he had it on again. So he was able to compare and contrast the two. Oh. So that's where he got his information. Spock can't tell yet when Edith is supposed to die. Kirk's heart is breaking and he reveals he loves her. Spock just says, Edith Keeler must die. Yeah. And I can get why he's sad about this but Mm. she's dead man Mm. she's been dead for hundreds of years yeah you're not going to be able to hang out with her you can't stay yeah you can't stay yeah i mean i get it it's sad but it's also like come on put it in perspective here man (laughs) so mccoy's with edith and he's doing better he he seems to be himself if not just a bit weak Uh, he looks around and says this looks like earth in 1925 And she says, try 1930. McCoy says that he's a chief medical officer on the USS Enterprise. And she says that he hardly looks like a sailor. Mm -hmm. So Edith notes that McCoy is using strange tenses. And she says that she has a friend that speaks the same way. And maybe he should talk to him. Mm. And McCoy says, I'm a surgeon, not a psychiatrist. There he goes. Later, Kirk runs into Edith. She slips on the stairs and he catches her. Spock sees this and gives him a cool stare. Unlike all of his other stares. (laughs) (laughs) After she leaves, Spock says she's got to die. Maybe you shouldn't have saved her. Kirk says it's not time yet. McCoy's not here. Spock says millions will die who didn't die before. Yeah, just driving that home. Mm. (laughs) So McCoy is now right as rain and thanks Edith for helping him out. How did she manage to get him well? She put a wet cloth on his forehead and damped (laughs) it like that and then tucked him in with some blankets. Wow. That's all it took. It was never going to go out of his system. They had to chase through space and time to try and get back a day to solve it. Well, I guess they were wrong and it fixes itself. The love of a woman. Or she's just got extra awesome powers. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She says lots of people drink from the wrong bottle sometimes. Mm. A parallel to helping an addict recover. Could be. He offers to help out around the mission to thank her. And he kind of seems to be creeping on her a (laughs) bit here. Getting his version of twinkly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, She says she's got a date with a gentleman caller to see a Clark Gable movie. Fun fact, Clark Gable was not a star in 1930. (laughs) His first job was in 1931 in a movie called Painted Desert. Oh, it must have been a home movie then of his. (laughs) 
<laughs> Kirk and Edith leave the mission and she mentions the Clark Gable thing. And Kirk says, who? And she says her pal, Dr. McCoy, had the same reaction. Kirk flips out instantly and runs to the mission. McCoy comes out at the same time and they hug each other with relief. Edith's confused and while watching them, she crosses the street. A car comes and she doesn't see it. McCoy does and starts to move to her, but Kirk grabs him back. Edith is hit by the car and killed. McCoy is angry. He says, you deliberately stopped me, Jim. I could have saved her. Do you know what you just did? And then Spock says, he knows, doctor. He knows. Kirk looks devastated. So Kirk and Spock come out of the portal and uh, McCoy follows soon after. Scotty says, you guys just left a few seconds ago. Spock says, we were successful. Time has resumed its shape. All is as it was before. Many such journeys are possible. Let me be your gateway. Captain, the Enterprise is up there. They're asking if we want to beam up. Let's get the hell out of there. Ouch. That is some stone cold lunch. Yeah. So concepts. Mm -hmm. I had a problem with how easy life was for Spock and Kirk during the depression. I get that Edith giving them a job as soon as she meets them is a save the cat thing. Mm -hmm. It makes her endearing and allows the plan about making the computer to progress and the relationship with her to develop. But really, they broke into her basement, confessed they'd stolen clothes. She knows zero about them. And straight away, she's offering them a permanent job. I understand you saying that she knows who should be trustworthy. Mm -hmm. But what a lucky break that is compared to what people were suffering out there. Lucky or fate. Then they're able to afford an apartment and food and have enough left over to buy bags of stuff to make a computer from and then take Edith to a movie. Mm -hmm. They don't have to suffer adversity, hunger, humiliation or struggle to get that first foot on the ladder at all. I think their hard work on the basement then inspires her to find the more lucrative work and a place to stay, etc. But what do you think about that? I think they could have maybe had a few lines. I mean, it's so ram-packed full of stuff. Yeah. A lot happens in this episode, and to go into that aspect of it would be more dialogue. I mean, maybe yeah. they could put in things like, instead of Kirk bringing back groceries, he's like, I wish we can buy some food with this. I'm really hungry. But they would be getting food from the mission as mm. well. Or couldn't they have won her over by doing something good for her? I felt like it was so economical that putting anything extra in would have just made it too long. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, you got a point that they didn't really suffer much in the Depression, obviously, because Kirk and Spock, I mean, they're like two of the most awesome dudes ever. <laughs> And they could probably handle the 1930s. Just saying. <laughs> Spock builds a flipping computer yeah. out of vacuum tubes. Yeah. If you can do that, then I'm sure you can come up with some other ways to survive in the 1930s or, or not. And they got her help. They're incredibly resourceful and intelligent. But I don't want that comment to translate as people who suffered and struggled didn't have intelligence or resource. No, but they, they have advantages. Mm-hmm. That obviously that people in the 1930s didn't. I mean, they just know more. Mm -hmm. So it didn't bother me. Yeah. I was interested in the concept of going back to unchange something so that the world could continue on its original course and they could all still exist. Mm -hmm. I especially liked that it was her promotion of pacifism, which led to destruction, actually. Yeah. But could she have had so much influence on politics in the 30s? She's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) She's the exception. Well, I mean, if she starts a movement and it's not just her, she gets other people, like-minded individuals. This is one of the cool concepts about this whole episode is the idea of pacifism works in certain ways and other ways it won't work. Like it worked with Gandhi. It worked with Martin Luther King to an extent. I mean, Mm. he died. Well, yeah. But his movement progressed the civil rights forward. There seems to be a time in history where that works and other times where it won't, especially if your oppressors don't care 
if they look bad. Hmm. Like, but this is saying, well, in this particular instance, it wouldn't have worked. If, hmm. if America decided to turn the other cheek, then the Nazis would have just gone through and conquered all of Europe and then eventually had enough power to conquer the world. Hmm. So this utopian society that works for Star Trek works because of the circumstances that brought it to that point. Those ideas, if they're too soon, they just won't flourish. They won't take root. Hmm. Great concept. Yeah. And again, I think they presented a nuanced exploration of pacifism and war, although it suggests America's pacifism leads to nuclear bombs in the hands of the Nazis. It also presents her as an honourable and endearing character. Yeah, for sure. And even though I called it naivety to begin with, I suppose her caring was meant to make it all the more painful that they had to let her die. Yeah. He'll want to save her. Yeah, if he does, millions will die and he will not exist. Mm -hmm. And that's an interesting concept. Even though I couldn't get over my annoyance at him for getting attached when he knew he couldn't stay. Yeah. So seven for concepts. Okay. I give it a, yeah, seven. Seven's pretty good. Entertainment. What'd you think? Really enjoyed McCoy on drugs. Yeah, me too. Awesome. <laughs> More respect for DeForest. <laughs> <laughs> I was promised a horror in 1930s New York and then they left her by the portal never to be seen again until the end. Come on. <laughs> She's inching further and further along. Getting, I guess so. More stuff. Weirdly, my mind was blank after watching it. You asked me what I thought and I couldn't think of anything to say. I think it's partly expectations. Several backers and you have mentioned it as one of their favourites. Mm. And I also felt a responsibility to like it and honour it because of that. Mm. I think it might have left me feeling a bit depressed, actually. Oh. And numb. Why do you say that? It's the blankness that I felt. I don't know if it's the setting, mm -hmm. the Great Depression leading into another incredibly difficult decade for mm -hmm. both England, America and others. For some reason, I couldn't get beyond that. I'm really confused with it. All right. I feel really disloyal not to have liked it more, but... You feel what you feel, more. Yeah. It's no big deal. I still love it. I, even upon rewatching it, it's one of my favorite episodes. I just, it's super character driven and interesting. And there's a lot of thought that goes into it. And I love Spock in that little fisherman's cap. For entertainment, I give it a 10. Five for me. Yeah. Sexiness. Joan's very pretty and she looks great in the 30s-ish silhouette, though of course her hair and makeup are pure 60s. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would have liked to have seen her a bit tougher, a bit harder to get, but her scientist brain and her compassion and idealism for the future of spending money on life, not war, was sexy. Mm -hmm. It was the ultimate in doomed holiday romances, though. <laughs> Sexy at the time, but then a lot of regrets and crying in the mirror for weeks afterwards. <laughs> Do you think we could get a summer loving parody going for this? Oh my God, I hope not. <laughs> Why not? Kirk didn't look so great out of uniform. Five. Yeah, he did look a little more just ordinary, didn't he? And, and he's short. Mm. He seemed oh, short yeah. to me. He never seemed short before. But yeah, for sexiness, average five. Mm -hmm. Well, Rachel, I'm sorry that this one didn't move you as it has moved me. But uh, I know I feel like I need to apologize to people as well. No, you but don't. I can't make you, myself no. like it, can I? And maybe it was a bit of expectations. You got a little yeah. bit of hype for you. Yeah. I still love it. And next week, this is our season finale. It's called Operation Annihilation. Oh, no. And I... Couldn't remember which one this was, and then I looked at it, and this episode freaked me out when I was a kid. Ooh, goody. It actually scared me. Yeah. I don't think it's going to scare you now, <laughs> no. and it'll seem pretty ridiculous, but Good. the hairs on the back of my neck are a little Ooh. raised right now. But Rachel, thank you for sitting and watching this episode with me. Thank you. And thank you, everybody out there listening. And thank you, patrons. Yeah. Don't forget to support us on patreon.com if you feel so inclined. And with that, I'm Chris Lackey. And I'm Rachel Lackey. And you've been listening to... Rachel Watches Star Trek.
Rachel watches Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs>